Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning in verse 2 this morning. We made it all the way through verse 1 last week, so we're rolling right along. We did a big uh, intro, kind of a recap, and then laid out for you what these next five uh, chapters are going to be like. Remember this chapter 5 in this first section, verses 1 through 10 are really all one thought. 1 through 4 is going to explain to us what the earthly qualifications for a high priest are. Verses 5 through 10 then are going to show how Christ fulfills uh, not only the earthly requirements for a high priest, but much beyond that, far, far beyond that. So if we had to summarize again all that we've learned so far from the book of Hebrews, it would be quite simply what? Christ is better. Christ is better, right? Christ is better. And from the very beginning, that's really what he's been trying to demonstrate. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's even better than Moses, right? He's better than Joshua. And and now he's better than Aaron, right? Of everybody that you hold dear in Judaism, the author of Hebrews keeps saying, Christ is better. And then he goes and shows how he is better in each and every way. And the primary reason that he keeps doing this, remember, is because these professing Christians have been tempted to fall away, to apostate, or to apostatize, is what we would call it in English, right? To apostatize, which means literally to fall away. They're falling away from their profession of Christ and wanting to go back to Judaism. Now, why do they want to do that? They want to do that because they're facing terrible persecution. Right? It is getting ramped up. They've always been persecuted from the Gentiles, but now they're being persecuted from their own brethren, from their own kindred nation, who uh, is trying to, um, trying to persuade them to go back to Judaism. And, of course, returning to Judaism would include all that that entails. That would be all the Old Testament rituals, all the Old Testament ceremonies, all the Old Testament feasts, and, of course, uh, the Old Testament covenant under the law. And then, of course, you would need to have a priest who would mediate all of those things for you. Which is why the author of Hebrews has been so adamant to demonstrate that what they have in Christ is far better than anything. And I mean anything that they had previously under the old covenant and sacrificial system. And he's going to really try and break that down for them and explain to them, this is what you had but everything you had was pointing to something even better. That what you had wasn't the final solution. It was just a picture. It was a, a shadow of things to come. And here, and he's going, to, he's going to map that out for them. He wants them to see that going back to the Old Covenant would not bring them closer to God, which is what they think, what they're being told. In fact, he says, it's going to pull you further away from God because you're going to reject Christ. You're going to reject God himself. And remember, that's what he's been warning them in the two previous warnings we've already had, right? Don't drift away. Don't let your ship of life drift past the harbor of salvation. Don't think that you're okay because you're not. Don't think that you can do a profession in Christ and then still go back to Judaism, that you've got it covered, that you've bought fire insurance, if you will. He's saying, don't do it. Then the second warning is what? Be careful not to miss God's rest. It's still available today, but don't miss it. 
don't miss it. And he goes and systematically shows it. You know, it was available to the wilderness wanderings, right? It was available during David's time. It's available to this little church in Hebrews. And guess what? It's available now today. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. So, uh, and the answer to that question is now: Why are they having such a hard time? If they understand that, you know, despite these two previous warnings. Some are still very reluctant to accept the idea that this new covenant with Jesus is really better. Because remember, they've been raised on the old covenant. And uh, so they're having a hard time really understanding it. And why is that? And I told you last week that the answer to that question lies in how the Jews viewed the holiness of God. They had such a high view of God and his holiness that they couldn't figure out how under this new covenant... Who is going to mediate for them? Who's going to be the person that stands between us and God? Because in their mind, they cannot fathom that they would be able to come anywhere near the presence of God. They understand their sinfulness. They understand how depraved they are. And they know they can't just stroll into God into their own terms, into their own way. And so they knew they had to have a mediator. If it wasn't Moses and Aaron... Right? Then who was it going to be? They just could not fathom that that was even a possibility. They recognized their own sinfulness. They recognized their need to have their sins forgiven by a holy and righteous God. What they did not understand was who's going to be the mediator? Who's going to be that go-between? Who is it going to be between them and God? That's what Moses and Aaron did under the Old Covenant. Who will it be? And later... Uh, God appointed whom after Moses and Aaron? He even appointed the high priest, right, to go in and to be that mediator between them. But to the Jew, the first question would be, how under this new covenant that you're telling me with Jesus, how is it possible to come into the presence of God without a high priest? How could that happen? They are having a hard time grasping that. Who's going to administer the sacrifices that would be necessary to atone for our sins? See, they didn't have a problem recognizing their sinfulness. They didn't have a problem with the holiness of God and a high view of God. Their problem was grasping how now this was possible to even come into the presence of God. Far different from today, isn't it? Where we have a low view of God and a low view of our sinfulness. And we think God just winks at our sin and everything's okay because he's a God of love. We've swung the pendulum so far the other way that we think God has to accept us because we're us. Why wouldn't he want me in heaven? I mean, come on. I mean, we're so full of ourselves. We have such a low view of God, such a high view of ourselves. We cannot fathom a God who wouldn't let us in. Surely my neighbor over there, you know, he's got all kinds of problems. But me, I'm in. Or so we think. But that's what we saw in verses uh, 14 of 16 of chapter 4, remember? The author of Hebrews answers the question of who is going to be that mediator between God and man. Who's going to be the one that steps in? And remember what he says, and he tells them, you now have what? A great high priest. Christ is the only one called that in Scripture. We have high priests, but there's only one great high priest. And remember, he explains why. He is a great high priest. He just kind of introduces it to us. Why? First, he doesn't just pass through the partitions, right? The three partitions to get into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood. He passes through the heavens and then comes into the presence 
of God, being God himself, into the Holy of Holies. And he doesn't just get in and tie little bells and rope around his feet and drag him back out, make sure he's alive, right? What happens there? He sits at the right hand of God the Father. There weren't any seats in the Holy of Holies. No priest would dare think to sit in the Holy of Holies. Are you kidding me? But Jesus did. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he intercedes for us. His very name signifies both his humanity and his deity. Yeshua, God save us. God saves Yeshua, Jesus, the Son of God. Human, fully human, fully God. And he was one who was tempted, remember in verse 15 of chapter 4, tempted with every human weakness, and yet what? Never sinned, never yielded to sin. And this new covenant has a great high priest, and the author of Hebrews wants you to know that his name is Jesus, the Son of God. He is the great high priest. He is the one who will mediate between you and God. That was just hard for them to grasp, though. Hundreds and hundreds of years of the old covenant with the high priest as the mediator, it's kind of difficult for them to grasp, which is why the author of Hebrews sets out, beginning in verse 1, to show very, spe very specifically why Christ is superior, why he's better than any earthly high priest. And remember the first Qualifications. She's going to say, this is what a high priest, these are the qualifications that a high priest had to have in order to even become a high priest. So he's going to go through all of those first. Then, remember verses 5 through 10, he's going to say, and Christ fulfills all of those and then some. Right? So for, so he starts it off in verse 1. He says, the first qualification of a high priest is what? He must have a shared humanity. What does that mean? He must be a human being. Right? He must be a man. God did not ordain angels. He didn't ordain animals. He didn't ordain any supernatural mediator to be the mediator between us and him. It had to be someone who was a partaker of the human nature, the human mind, and the human body. Angels could not ever effectively uh, mediate for man because they don't partake of human nature. They're not human. They could not be a high priest and be our representative in the Holy Holies. See, from the very inception, the very creation of the priesthood, God ordained that it would be men who represented men before God. And they had to have shared weaknesses. That priest had to know what it's like to be tempted with sin. That priest had to know what it's like to struggle in their own sinfulness, their own weaknesses. That priest had to know what that felt like. That priest had to know what it was like to suffer, to have grief, to have loss. How could he ever represent us if he didn't know what any of that ever felt like? And then remember the second half of verse 1, he had another qualification that he had to do, which was to do what? He had to be able to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Remember I told you, that's the key function of a high priest is to mediate between man and God. And one of the ways that was done was through the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system. And we spent some time already on this previously in Leviticus 16 and, that, and the high priest's duties on the Day of Atonement. Remember the first thing the high priest had to do before he could ever atone for our sins, right? Was to do what? Atone for his own. 
right? He had to atone for his own sins. Then and only then could he ever represent the people of God in the Holy of Holies. Why was that necessary? Because sin is the great barrier between man and God. And we are not invited into his presence until that sin is dealt with. And God has ordained that those sins would be dealt with vicariously. What does vicariously mean? That means on behalf of somebody else, right? I'm doing something on behalf of somebody else. So I'm doing something vicariously. And, uh, that means that God ordained that the high priest would have to atone for the sins first through the shedding of blood, a blood sacrifice. Why a blood sacrifice? Because the scriptures tell us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Very good. No forgiveness of sins. After that, he would then be able to enter the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the people of God to atone for their sins. These sacrifices for sin, though, were only temporary coverings for sin. But they pointed to the day when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. So the first question, first qualification, I'm sorry, for the high priest was that he had to have a shared humanity. He had to know what it was like. He had to have a human nature. He had to, have, he had to know what it was like to have weaknesses and struggles and temptations and loss and grief. He had to understand that. He could not be our representative if he did not get that. We'll look at verses 2 and 3. That's where we pick it up here this morning. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. The next qualification we see for a high priest is that he must... Deal gently. He must be able to deal gently. Now, what does that mean? Specifically, the, te the text tells us the high priest is to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Now, that doesn't sound like a nice description of someone, does it? Ignorant and misguided. We'll get to that in a moment. But for now, let's focus on what it means to deal gently. That word here is meritrepetio which means to have control over your emotions. To have control over your emotions. To have compassion for the mistakes and the errors and the sins of others. The idea here is that the qualification for this high priest is that he would not let his emotions rule his response to hearing and then interceding for the people of God. In other words... He would temper his response and deal gently with them as they came seeking guidance for their sins in their life. Now, why is that important? Why would the priest need to have to be able to be able to deal gently with the sins of others? Well, imagine a scenario where you come to me as your pastor. You let me know of a specific sin in your life that you're struggling with. And my response is, okay, cut it out. See you next week. Stop doing that. What kind of person would commit that kind of sin? Or perhaps you're telling me you're struggling with grief or anxiety or the loss of a loved one, and my response was, get over it. Suck it up, cupcake. I mean, uh, would that sound like a very loving thing for me to say? What would your response be in return? Are you coming to me next time you have a real struggle in your walk? Probably not. Probably not. Why not? 
Because there's no sincere compassion, and that's the next qualification. You've got to have a shared humanity, sincere compassion for what you're going through. Remember, the, the primary function of the high priest is to do what? To mediate between God and man, right? To represent us before God. That's his primary responsibility. He has to be the intercessor between man and God. He's to cry out to God, to plead with God through prayer and supplication and sacrifice on behalf of the people that God has given him to represent. That's what the high priest does. That's what your elders and pastors do now in the church. They plead with God on your behalf. They cry out to God. And when you bring your sin to them and you're struggling with or your temptations to the things you're dealing with, we gather together and we pray for you. You may not even realize that. We cry out to God on your behalf. We intercede to God for you. That's what we do. That's a qualification. How can he do, I mean, how can he do that if he does not have sincere compassion for those he's called to represent before God? How can your pastors and elders cry out to God and plead with God on your behalf if they don't have sincere compassion for what you're struggling with? The answer is, they cannot. That's why it's such an essential qualification. What then is the source of this sincere compassion? If it's so essential, is this just something you're born with? Are you just, you just have this sincere compassion? It's just part of your makeup? Or can you cultivate it on your own? Can you say, well, I'm not really a compassionate person, but I think I can drum some up for you. Well, actually, the text in verse 2 tells us that this sincere compassion is rooted in the understanding that the high priest himself is also beset with weaknesses. You see, a person who is not compassionate could care less about anybody else's pain because their struggles are merely an interruption to the things that they like to do. There's no sense of compassion for their fellow believer because their struggles impede on the things in life at the most ill-opportune times. Like trying to take a vacation. Things just happen. And you need to come back. And you need to respond. And you need to love them. This is why the high priest has to be a human being. He has to have shared humanity. And as I stated before, he must have his own struggles with sin, his own battles with temptation, his own sense of grief, his loss and anger and bitterness and loneliness and etc., 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 that's a, not just a, a recommendation, it's an essential qualification for a high priest. You have to have sincere compassion for what you're going through. Because as a fellow human being, he, does, he knows exactly what it's like to deal with those same struggles. And because he's facing those own struggles in his life, and he has to cry out to God for himself, and he has to repent of his own sins, and he has to... He has to lay those sins at the foot of cross every single day. Then he knows what it's like when the people of God come to him and say, I'm really struggling, Pastor. I'm really struggling. 
This then gives him the reference to draw from, to deal gently, to deal compassionately with the other children of God who are struggling as well. Well, what kind of struggling people is the author of Hebrews talking about? Well, he actually lists two kinds of people here. They are the ignorant and the misguided. Now, why does the Holy Spirit have the author of Hebrews use these two specific words? Because at first glance, it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Calling somebody ignorant and misguided. But there's more to these two words than first meets the eye. Each word here represents two categories of sins in the Old Testament. So stay with me. They are sins of ignorance and sins of willful disobedience. Sins of ignorance, sins of willful disobedience. Now to unpack those, we need to look at a few passages in the Old Testament. So keep your place in Hebrews and turn way back to the book of Leviticus Chapter 4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So those crisp, shiny pages there in Leviticus, chapter 4. Look here, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Sin, sins born out of ignorance are called unintentional sins that you're aware of. You're aware of these. Unintentional sins are not just sins that you didn't know about. They also include sins where we acted rashly or out of anger or out of passion. They include sins that happen as a result of finally yielding to a temptation. And all of those sins would be considered by God to be either ignorant, either lack of knowledge, right, or caught up in the moment in your fleshliness, if you will. So they would all be considered ignorant or unintentional. And of the un unintentional sins, there are two types of sacrifices given to account for them. There were the unintentional sins that the sinner was aware of that they committed. And for all of the unintentional sins that the sinner was aware of and truly repented for those sins, God commanded that daily sacrifices were made. So they would, they were made aware of these sins. Lord, I sinned here, I sinned here, I sinned here. They would go, and the priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of those sins. They would repent. Now, for the unintentional sins that the sinner was not even aware that they had committed, but, of course, God is, that's where you have the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, right? That whole thing that we've been looking at, where it goes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. But notice also included that the high priest, you see that in verse 3 of chapter 4 in Leviticus there, he also is included in those unintentional sins, those sins of ignorance. Now turn with me to Numbers. So go to the next book over, Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 22.
But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from that day when the Lord gave commandments and onward through your generations, verse 24, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering, drink offering, according to the ordinance, one male goat for a sin of offering. So notice in verse 24 that these are sins that are committed how? Unintentionally. Then verses 25 and 26, we see here, Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven. You notice that? They will be forgiven. For it was an error, and they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. Verse 26, so all the congregation of the sons of Israel, what? Will be forgiven. So here, verses 25 and 26, there's a sacrifice given for those unintentional sins, and those sins are forgiven. Note again, these sins are unintentional, but they still need to be forgiven. Why? Because there's still a sin. There's still a sin before God. Even if you committed it unintentionally, you still have to atone for it. So verses 24 and 26 are the sacrifices for the unintentional sins that you're aware of that have been committed corporately, the whole body. Verses 27 to 29 are the sacrifices for individuals that commit unintentional sins that they're aware of. So again, the sins that are committed in ignorance or unintentionally are the ones that are forgiven through the sacrificial system if the sinner was truly repentant. Now, let's look at the other word in verse 2, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, misguided. Now, that word has been translated several different ways. Some of you have it translated going astray. I think the King James has it out of the way. My translation has misguided. The word literally means to be deceived from a belief or deceived from doing the proper action. So this is the second kind of sin. This is a willful choice to sin. The Bible calls this in the Old Testament presumptive sins. You presume that it's okay for you to sin. You willfully choose to sin. And I want you to notice that for this type of sin, there is no sacrifice that can be given. None. Go back here, look at Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything, what? Defiantly. Whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. What's the action required for a willful choice to disobey God? The text tells us the penalty for that is what? Death. Death. Look at verses 32 of verse 31. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Then in verses 32 to 36, look what happens here. In case you didn't understand what that means, when you willfully choose 
to ignore God's commands, when you willfully choose to reject God, when you willfully choose to turn away from God and fall away from God and do your own thing, he's going to give us a little example so that we all get it. Verse 32. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. Is this a violation of the law? Yes. Anyone working on a Sabbath? What's the penalty? Death. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. Verse 34. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. They're trying to figure out what? Is this ignorance? Right? Did he not know? Is that even possible? Did he not know he wasn't supposed to do that? Or is he repentant of it? Then the Lord said to Moses, This man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord commanded. This man willfully chose to pick up sticks on the Sabbath. And the penalty for that was death. No sacrifice existed for a rebellious, disobedient, willful choice by man against God and the law. And incidentally, there is none today. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Go back to Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 3. Remember, we looked at this before. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, what? An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. For those that willfully choose to disregard the gospel, there is no sacrifice that they could say and say, well, it's okay, you disregarded the gospel, it's all right. I sacrificed a bull, you're good. There is no sacrifice for that. There was no provision under the Old Testament. There is none under the New Testament for rejecting the offer of salvation from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no sacrifice that we could do that atones for you rejecting the gospel. The Lord looks at that as intentional apostasy. What does that mean? Intentionally falling away from God, intentionally choosing to reject God. Intentionally falling away from God by rejecting the gospel, and incidentally, when you reject the gospel, you're rejecting God. Only unintentional sins that are repented of can be covered by sacrifice. Now peek ahead to Hebrews chapter 10 for a second. I want to show you another passage here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Incidentally, this is right after the passage that tells you why it's so important for you to come to church. Right, right, after, it's why, right after why you need to be in the body of Christ all the time. Then in verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains what? A sacrifice for sins. Here the idea of is a lifestyle of habitual sinning while claiming to be a follower of Christ. If, if I claim to be a follower of Christ, but I willfully choose to remain in my sin, and it becomes not just a once thing or a one-off thing, but that is how my life is marked, 
the author of Hebrews says, what sacrifice could there possibly be for you rejecting Christ? What is it? If you've already rejected Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross, what on earth do you think would be a, a suitable sacrifice to atone for your sin of rejecting him? We're not talking about isolated, repented sins of the type that we talked about earlier, but premeditated, habitual sin that the professing believer does without repentance. And their habitual sin is a deliberate rejection of Christ. And it doesn't matter what our reasoning is. I think sometimes we think we have a pretty good argument against God. You know, I know I did this. I know I, know I was not supposed to do this. I know God tells me not to do it. But did God really think about this? Because that's why I went ahead and did it anyway. I think we think that we can somehow argue with God our case before God, and he's going to go, oh, you know what? I didn't even see that one, of course. Well, well, that's why it's okay to sin. <laughs> I should have thought of that. No, no, no. Notice that it's not a lack of knowledge, but a willful choice to reject sin and to remain in unrepentant sin. You know, when I read this and I'm going through this, who, who immediately came to mind to me? Judas Iscariot traveled with Christ for three years, sat under the same teaching that Pastor Ben was talking about this morning, right? Three years, individual discipleship with Jesus Christ, with God himself in the flesh. Three years every day. Do you think he was lacking in knowledge? Now, he willfully chose to do what he did. See, there's no, there's no sacrifice that can atone for the sin of continuously rejecting Christ. And for, by their willful, unrepentant, misguided choice, they reject the only sacrifice that could possibly atone for their sins. But let me add this before we move on. Any sin can become an unintentional sin if that sinner would just repent. If they would just repent. And once that sinner was repentant, the priest then would deal with him or her how? Gently, compassionately, knowing that they too struggle with their temptations and their weaknesses. It was the priest acting as a mediator between God and man that could lead the way back to God for the repentant, ignorant, and misguided sinner. So we've seen that the first qualification for a high priest was to be human, to have a shared humanity so they could represent before God. Secondly, the high priest must have a sincere compassion that's rooted in the weakness that comes from being a human so that they could intercede on behalf of us. The third qualification here is in verse 4. The third qualification for a high priest, not only shared humanity, not sincere compassion, but they had to be supernaturally selected. Supernaturally selected. Every priest here is divinely appointed. And that word appointed in the Greek is passive, which means it's something acting upon me. I don't appoint myself. You know, I couldn't appoint myself as the high priest. Somebody else had to do it. Who is it, in this case, who appointed the priest and the high priest and gave them the office of the priesthood? Who is that? God himself is the one who appointed those priests. 
God himself is the one who did that. There was no democratic election. There was no self-appointing priesthood. The only way to become a priest was through the supernatural selection by God. Keep your place here in Hebrews. Turn to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28. Look at verses 1 through 3 here. God says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, and from among the sons of Israel to do what? To minister as priests to whom? God says, To me. To me. Bring Aaron, bring Nadab, bring Abihu, bring Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons who I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, <laughs> that they may minister as priests to whom? God says to me. God appointed them. God, God designates every special, every specific thing about them. Here's what you'll wear. Here's what you'll say. Here's what the stones on your shoulders represent. Here's what the pockets in the front on the vest say. Here's when you'll do it. Here's what sacrifices you'll offer. Here's what kind of heart you have to have. God does it all. He does it all. The priest, and especially the high priest, were to have a deep sense of humility. It's not a career for them. It's a calling. In other words, you don't pull yourself into the ministry. God does. And it starts with a call. Aaron didn't apply for the ministry. He didn't scribble something out on lambskin. He didn't win Priest of the Year award. He doesn't hold the world's record for the number of bulls sacrificed in one hour. None of anything that he did ever would have had any influence. God did it all. <coughs> no true priest of God would ever think of elevating themselves to the position of a priest or a high priest. They had to be called by God just like Aaron was. In fact, when others tried to assume the position of priests, Without God's supernatural selection, that was a horrible mistake. Horrible mistake. Turn to Numbers chapter 16. I know I'm up against the clock. Stay with me. Numbers 16. Do you remember what happened here? Korah. Korah and the sons of Itzar, the sons of Kohath, the sons of Levi with Dathan and Nabirim, and the sons of Eliab, and the, and the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action, and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy. Listen, we're all consecrated. We're all called by God. Not just you, Moses. You're exalting yourself. And when Moses heard that, notice in verse 4 how he responded. He fell on his face. Why did he do that? Because they attacked him personally? Because his feelings were hurt? No. Because he knows how God is going to respond. He knows what's going to happen. He says, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy? Who is separated? Who is consecrated unto the Lord by the Lord's decree? 
Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do you notice that? Then in verse 8, jump down there. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation? Is it not enough that God has pulled you out for no good reason other than by simply his choice and gave you this duty to do and provided for you to do it? to bring you near here to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation, to minister, which means to serve them. Is that not enough for you? And he's brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Is that not enough for you? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is that you crumble against him? Jump down to verse 16. Moses said to Korah, you and all your company, you come before the Lord tomorrow. Each of you take his fire pan, so censer, put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 fire pans, and we'll bring ours. So they each took their censer, put fire in it, laid incense in it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. So they stood outside the tabernacle there, right? 250 strong. And the glory of the Lord appeared before the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, separate yourself from that congregation. Back away. Because I'm going to consume them in an instant. But they fell on their faces. Oh, God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? These leaders have led them astray, God. Do you need to take care? Are you going to wipe them all out? That's what, they're, that's what he's praying. That's what he's pleading. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation. And you tell them, get back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Step away. And Moses arose and went to Dathan. He told him, he said, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you'll be swept away in their sin. Notice here what happened next. The whole earth opened up. Notice verse 31. And they finished speaking all these words. The ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions, so that all that had belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Fire also came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. God showed the rebels and all of Israel, for that matter, that he had appointed Moses and Aaron by causing the ground to open up and swallow them. And when some in the congregation grumbled at this judgment, you know what happened next? A plague broke out, and 14,000 of them. The Lord said, you don't appoint your mediator. I will appoint your mediator. It's interesting in this passage in verses 38 to 40, they gather up the censers, little thing that had the incense and the fire in it, 
and they pound those out into metal and put them on the altar as a reminder to anyone who would look upon that and think, oh, okay. Remember that time we tried to take it upon ourselves? To do it? Ooh, not good, not good. All right, well, we're out of time, unfortunately. I'm going to have to stop here. Notice these qualifications. We'll pick it up from here next week. Notice these qualifications here. Shared humanity. Sincere compassion. Supernatural selection. Had to be a man. Had to have sincere compassion. And that sincere compassion was rooted in having a human nature and knowing what it's like to struggle with sin or to be tempted. To know what it's like to experience loss as a human, grief as a human. Think about those things when we get into the next section. And we talk about Christ and how he fulfills each and every one of those for us. Here's what I want to leave you with here today. Remember the two kinds of sins we have, the unintentional and the willful. And remember what happens, that there is no sacrifice that atones for willfully rejecting God. None. Even if you've rejected God before, even if you've rejected the gospel before, even if you've convinced yourself it's okay for you to willfully choose to stay in your sin, that sin can be covered. It can be atoned for if you only repent. If you just lay it at the foot of the cross. But if you're unrepentant and you reject the only sacrifice that could ever atone for those sins, there is no sacrifice that can be given on your behalf. Those are scary words, aren't they? But they're words that God has put out there for us to think through. Maybe you're here today. You've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe maybe you think you get plenty of time. Maybe you think that it's okay that you continue to reject him. Or maybe you're in a sin. You've called yourself a Christian, but you're staying in this sin, and you know it's a sin, and it's eating away at you. But just because of the hardness of your heart, you refuse to repent. You refuse to repent. I pray you do not let another day pass by. Lay that at the foot of the cross. Repent of that sin. For that sin, the sins that you repent, oh, they're covered. They're covered through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But you have to repent, brothers and sisters. You have to repent. You can't stay in that sin. You can't call yourself a believer and then stay willfully rejecting Christ. So I pray that the Lord will finish that in your heart today. You know, if that's you, you know what that sin is. Easy way to fix that. If you're a true believer, repent. Lay that at the foot of the cross. Let's take a moment, shall we? And then we'll close with song. Take a moment, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder here that you are a good and gracious and loving God. And you know that sin is a great barrier. We cannot approach you on our own terms, on our own way. We don't get to tell you what kind of sins we should, you should accept of ours. It doesn't work that way, Lord. You are holy and perfect and righteous. And so, Father, if we're here today and we've rejected the truth of the gospel, 
I pray, Lord, we'd repent of that, surrender our life to you, recognize you as our Lord and Savior, confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that you are Lord and Savior. Father, if we're here today and we've professed to be a believer, but we have sin in our life that is that we've not repented of, I pray today would be the day that we would not presume upon your grace. We'd lay that at the foot of the cross. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we?